You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball, and my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Barrett Developments, Emis Group, Burberry, Tullow Oil, Just Eat Takeaway, and PepsiCo. So, John, what do you want to start with? Shall we start with, oh, bloody hell, what are we starting with, sir? Barrett Developments. <laughs> we'll start with Barrett Developments. So, Sam, Britain's largest house builder, what have they been saying? Barrett Developments have come out with a trading statement and they've said they expect a full year underlying pre-tax profit to be at the top end of market expectations, which are between £860 million and £890 million. Pounds. And this follows an excellent recovery in completion volumes to 17,243 homes, up 36.8% on last year and 3.4% behind 2019. And the group expects to report full year results on 2nd of September. So they've said net private reservations per active outlet rose from 0.6 last year to 0.78, which is ahead of the 0.7 recorded in 2019. The group operated from an average of 343 outlets over the year, down from 366, and was operating from 358 at the end of June. The group's average selling price rose 3.1%, to £289,000, and the average private price was £325,000, or 4.6%. The group has forward sold 14,334 homes worth £3.5 Paired with 14,326 homes worth 3.2 billion last year and 11,419 worth 2.6 billion the year before. The private average selling price of the forward sold homes was 339,800, up from 320,200 last year. The group has seen build cost inflation of about 2% of the year, but that figure is currently at 3 to 4%. Barrett has repaid £26 million under the coronavirus job retention scheme and has incurred £81 million in costs for fire safety in legacy buildings. Barrett approved £876.8 million in land spending this year, amounting to 18,000 plots, and the group is still targeting a land bank with around 4.5 years' worth of property in it and expects to buy a further 18,000 to 20,000 plots next year. As of 30 June, Barrett had 1.3 billion in net cash and 700 million in undrawn credit. The group owes 660 million for land, which is about 22% of the owned land bank. In terms of the valuation, the company trades at a forward PE ratio of 9.2, and that compares to a 10 year average of 10.2, and it has a prospective dividend yield of 5.6%. John, your thoughts on this trading statement and I mean, I think it's a very, very fair valuation. I'd say it's probably cheap. And the numbers, the numbers are great. And it's, I mean, at the moment, I suppose I don't really see that many headwinds for Barrett. And with that sort of dividend, that dividend yield as well, it's, it's good on both both fronts. I mean, it's probably, yeah, a good dividend play in your portfolio, as well as, you know, significant room, I would say for growth as well, given the demand supply imbalance and sort of I suppose the, the fundamentals uh, in the UK housing market so I I like it 
Yeah, I like it as well. I, I think this trading statement isn't in any way a surprise, given that we looked at Persimmon last week. And yeah. They were very good results as well. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I'd say it's probably my favourite house builder, actually, in terms of valuation and just the approach that they take. But they're all very, very similar, as we say, every time. Yeah. And I, I agree that valuation, I think, is very reasonable. Obviously, it is a cyclical, but, I mean, I still see a lot of tailwinds for the industry in general. Yeah, and they're certainly in a better shape than they were pre-2008, where yeah. they were significantly over-leveraged. If you look at the balance sheet there, it's much healthier. So if there were a downturn in the economic cycle, it would be better place to weather it, I think. Yeah. I mean, in my own portfolio, I have a house builder. It's not Barrett, but I'd be comfortable holding it for the longer term, I think. No, I, I like it. If I was wanting a house builder, I probably would go with Barrett. But I mean, there's a lot of good house builders listed yeah. in the UK. Yeah. And we said before you could take a, a basket approach yeah. to it as yeah. well. Right. Okay. Should we move on to Emis Group then? Yeah. So Emis, this is a much smaller company. It's the essentially builds the software for GP surgeries and pharmacies. They had their full year results out this week and they announced total revenue of 158.5 million, which is flat compared with 2019. Recurring revenue rose 4% to 130 million pounds. Underlying profit was also flat at 39.3 million. In the EMIS health division, revenue rose to 107.8 million from 100.9 million. And there was an increase in demand for hardware due to the need for mobile working during the pandemic. And that, combined with lower operating costs, raised underlying operating profit by 8% to £25.1 million. And in terms of market share, the group have commented, EMIS maintained its UK GP market leadership position with a market share of 57%. And that's actually, yeah, like we say, flat compared with 2019, which was also 57%. And the group holds a joint market leadership position in acute A&E at 21%, compared with 23% in 2019. So it's actually lost a small amount of market share there. And number two market position in the community at 20%. That's, again, down 1% from 2019. In the EMIS Enterprise Division, revenues were held back by a weaker market and fewer licensing deals. In comparison to the previous year, there were delays in implementing services as a result of COVID and revenue was down 12% to £51.7 million, with underlying operating profit coming in at £15.7 million in comparison with £17.5 million in 2019. During the year, the first products from the EMIS X analytics suite were launched, and EMIS X is essentially a cloud analytics tool, and it's, I guess, to analyze large sets of healthcare data, and that's something that I think Matt Hancock, before he resigned, was very keen on, and what could be learned and potentially what could be extracted in an anonymized way from that, potentially being quite valuable. EMIS also acquired Pinnacle, which is a platform that helps GPs triage and refer patients. And that was for £2.9 million. And the acquisition contributed to £2.2 million of group revenue over the year. Net capital expenditure was much lower at just under £500,000, 
compared with £5.6 million as purchase was largely offset by sales of head office equipment. At the end of the year, EMIS had a net cash position of £53 million, which is up £21.9 million. So it's got a price to earnings of 216 and its market cap is £753 million with a prospective dividend yield of 3%. What were your thoughts on these results, Sam? I guess the results looks fine. My issue with it was that if you look at the last five years of revenue, it's not grown at all. It's, it's basically flat every single year, which I guess makes sense because you know if they're UK-based and they're basically their customers in the NHS or GPs, that's not really a market that's going to be growing. And if they're not taking market share, then yeah, there's not there's not really anywhere the growth is going to come from. But I think for a company that's not growing, it's quite expensive. Yeah, that's how I felt about it. I mean, in theory, I think it's quite an attractive business model with sort of software as a service, but they don't seem to be able to raise revenue significantly. And then in a couple of areas, they'd actually lost market share. I think probably one of the other bigger risks is that... If they, if they have the NHS as their sort of primary customer and they lost a significant contract with the NHS, that revenue could really dry up because yeah. it's not like they've got other markets that they're in or could go to. So I think that's a bit concerning. And at that valuation, like you say, it's not cheap. I mean, I suppose on the positive side, you know, I guess, relatively high barriers for entry. So you might say, well, they're, they're not that likely to lose the contracts and they are the market leader in primary care and in A&E. But I mean, like we say, A&E has, they have lost some market share there. I think there are a couple of other competitors. I know the system one, I don't think that's actually public, but yeah, I think it sounds good, but when you dig into it a bit more and you look at what the last five years have been, and I think even when Andy Thornburn, the new chief executive, took over in 2017, the plan to sort of turn it around a bit, not much has changed. So I, I think a few concerns for me there. Have you ever used the software or interacted with it? I have, actually. And it's, it's quite, I'd say it's quite good. I definitely don't think it's anything like you'd experience in the US and anything, you know, that Apple has touched. I mean, it's a world away from this, but it's, you know, you compare it with some of the more antiquated systems they have in the NHS and it's, it's not bad, but I don't, I certainly don't think it's groundbreaking. That's for sure. So is it, is it one that you consider one that you'd watch? Probably not, not without the revenue growth. And like you say, there is that concentration risk because it's so dependent on the NHS. Yeah, it's, it's not really at the current valuation with the lack of growth and the dependence on the NHS. It doesn't look very attractive to me. No, and the, the chief executive, Andy Thornburn, is, I think, well aware of these problems. He said he's aiming to get 50% of the revenue coming from the private sector, like pharmacies. So that's at least 50% of the sort of overall revenues. But that side of the business is lower margin and there's no guarantee that he's going to get there anyway. So yeah, I don't, to be honest, I don't think it's one for me. I think an interesting business, but I don't, it's, I wouldn't invest in it. Right. Shall we move on to Burberry then? Yes. So probably a, a brand familiar to everybody. Yes. So Burberry, 
I mean, I, I, I guess everyone should know, but they're the, I guess they're just a, they're a luxury goods retailer. That's probably the best way to describe them. But yeah, so they have come out with a Q1 trading statement. They've announced that first quarter revenue rose 98% to 479 million pounds, which reflected a 90% increase in comparable store sales and growth across all regions. Full price comparable store sales more than doubled compared to last year. However, the group said Asia and Europe are still being negatively affected by reduced tourist travel. Sales were less impressive compared to pre-pandemic times, with comparable store sales now in line with pre-COVID trading, partly reflecting the decision to reduce the outlet business and markdowns in store. Full-year guidance is unchanged, except wholesale revenue, which is expected to increase by around 60% in the first half, up from 50%. In Asia-Pacific, sales rose 27% compared to last year, with strong growth in mainland China and Korea. Compared to pre-pandemic times, sales were up 7%. The group said much of Asia is still being heavily impacted by the significant decline of international tourist travel. The EMEIA region, which is Europe and the Middle East, I think, from memory, saw sales up 146% compared to last year, but still down 38% overall compared to pre-COVID levels. This is because of weaker tourist footfall and store closures, especially in continental Europe. Full price store sales more than doubled in the Americas since before the pandemic, helping overall comparable sales rise 34%. Compared to last year, sales were up 341%, helped in part by strong traction with new and younger customers. Compared to last year, leather goods, outerwear and shoes have done very well. Since pre-pandemic, Burberry's full price sales to new customers are up over 30%, and online sales have more than doubled. An average of 11% of stores were closed in the period, but this had fallen to 3% by the end of June. However, 35% of stores are still operating at reduced hours. It's worth noting as well, Burberry's been a bit of a turnaround in story in recent years. As mentioned, they've tried to move away from having to discount the goods. The CEO, Marco Gabetti, who, who has been in charge of that turnaround, has actually actually left at the end of June. And they're currently looking for a replacement for him. In terms of the valuation, it trades at a PE ratio of 23.7, and that compares to a 10-year average of 20.4, and the prospective dividend yield over the next 12 months is 2.4%. John, thoughts on this trading statement and Burberry as a company? I mean, it certainly turned around a lot since this time last year. And I think sort of fundamentally it is a quality brand and it should return, I suppose, the, the revenues you'd expect to, and, and profits um, as well. You'd expect to return to sort of pre-pandemic levels, but it really is hinging on the travel. And the travel still is, despite having the vaccine, is quite troubled at the moment. And I suppose who knows really when we're going to get back essentially to what it was in 2019. And certainly looking at it in terms of the valuation, it's not cheap at the moment. So I think... I would consider it, but it would certainly be a long-term investment, and I think it would it would it may take you know a couple of years before we do get get back to those to those better I suppose to those more profitable times. I think probably we've also seen a lot of that baked in with the recover the recovery of the shares in the last year as well. So the current price, it, you certainly wouldn't look at it and think it's cheap. Probably at least fairly valued. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I, I'd, 
I'd probably echo your comments, to be honest. I think in terms of the turnaround, that, that all seems to be going quite well. There's certainly a few positives in there. I think the increase in online sales, you'd hope that they retain some of that in the post-COVID world, which, which would be good, obviously. I think the turnaround, they have done a good job with the turnaround. I think these are a fairly good set of numbers and you know there's not there's no surprises in yet in there what concerns me is is the fact that the ceo's now gone so the person who's been you know driving that turnaround isn't there anymore and given like you say it's basically priced as if it's already fully recovered i wouldn't buy it at the current levels but i do think it is a decent company i think that, that, that's that's a fair system. would you put it on your watch list do you think I would, yeah, I would. I wouldn't. It's not something I'd rule out purchasing, mm. but you know, it would need to be at significantly more of a discount, really, especially when it is. It is still a turnaround story. I know it's now getting towards the later stages that turnaround. Hopefully, it does look like it will be a successful one, but it is still a turnaround, and it's priced as if nothing can go wrong. I think. Yes, exactly. Fine. Next company we have Tullo Oil which is a FTSE 250 oil company, and they've had their half-year trading results or trading update out. And the group have announced that they expect half-year revenue to come in at around $700 million with approximately 61,200 barrels per day produced, which is in line with analysts' expectations and a realised oil price of $58 a barrel. Group also noted that in Ghana, production at the Jubilee oil field was better than expected, producing 70,600 barrels a day, or 25,100 on a net basis. Meanwhile, at the 10 oil field, gross production came in at 37,000 barrels per day. And the floating production storage and offloading vessels used to extract the the stored oil were in operation 98% of the time, which was a marked change compared with this time last year. Until those non-operated division, net production stood at 18,800 barrels per day, again in line with expectations. The Kenya project has also been redesigned with an update due in the second half of the year, and there's a reallocation of some of the capital to accelerate the Simba expansion. The group's also commented that it has hedges in place for 51% of forecast production. It's also confirmed that completion of the sales of the Equatorial Guinea assets and the Desafu Marin permit in the Gabon to Panoro in March and June for the region for in the region of $133 million. There's also potential for further cash payments of up to $40 million, depending on asset performance and oil price. Tullo's debt has been refinanced with Tullo issuing $1.8 billion in bonds with a five-year maturity and also set up a new $500 million revolving credit facility. Net debt stood at $2.3 billion at the end of June 2021 and full-year capital expenditure has been lowered from $265 million to $250 million and that's largely due to asset sales. Going forward, if we gave a conservative estimate that the oil price stayed at $60 a barrel for the rest of the year, full year underlying cash flow would come in at around the $600 million mark. In terms of valuation, price to earnings is 11.4 compared with a 10-year average of 14.1. And it's not currently paying a dividend. Its market cap is 
approximately 670 million pounds. Sam, what are your thoughts on tallow oil? Yeah, I didn't like it. Not, uh, not one you touch with a barge pole. Yeah, basically. I mean, have you seen the share price performance? What's it been doing? 10 years ago, it was trading at £12.50 a share, just over. It's yeah. now at 47p a share. Yeah. In the last five years, it's down 75%. In three years, yeah. it's down 78%. Two years, 77%. One year it's up fifty six percent. Okay, I mean, much. it looks like that's due to firstly the oil price crash mm. is tied in with that. They've had some of their exploratory wells that have come up empty. Which, yeah, and that's just that's not good. They've, they've had a lot of debt. That they, I know they've refinanced it, but where's where's the future revenue going to come from? Because they're now putting back on capital expenditure. That yes. yeah, that was my worry about it because if it is a traditional oil company, where where is the future revenue going to come from? If they're first of all, if they're not divesting, which is you know f- fair enough, I suppose if you're going to be a pure oil play, but where is the future? Where is the future growth? Or not growth, but where's the future revenue going to come from if you're not if you're not exploring? Yeah, and and I, I appreciate not- they still are, but you know with less capital expenditure. Yeah, and they've not got the the best track record of it. I know there's an element of luck in there, but yeah, yeah, and, and then as well, they are just one of the smaller ones as well. So that you know, it's going to be tough. For, I mean, I think the future of this industry over the next 20, 30 years. I mean, it's going to be tough for the likes of Shell. You know, mm. so a little tull of oil, they're just a minnow, really. Yeah, and when they're I mean, a minnow that's saddled with so much debt, it's I don't know why you'd want to hold it for the long term, to be honest. I mean, it's not an industry I'm keen on at all anyway, but I'd much rather own Shell or BP. Yeah, uh, no, I, I mean, that almost entire, my sentiments exactly. I mean, I think if you were to look at it more positively, I suppose the fact that the oil price is much higher and that it's sort of, you know, hovering around the mid 70s is very positive for low, but I don't think that's going to, you know, solve all of its problems. Hopefully they can reduce uh, the debt a little bit more and maybe if they have some good luck with the the drilling but yeah i think if you were wanting something in this sector there are much better and healthier companies yeah. probably you know your shells and your bps really could argue with those that they are potentially looking beyond oil and uh, what to do about net zero yeah. whether or not you buy into that but i think you look at those well beyond anything like to low oil I think Tolo just doesn't have the resources to look beyond oil at the minute because they're struggling no. just with oil. No, that's right. That's that is true. That that that's true. And I suppose there are things like hydrogen, which you know I think Shell have invested quite a lot of money in. But no, at the moment I, I can't. I find I, I'm really struggling to find anything positive about Tolo oil and. I think we can both agree it won't be our, our stock of the week. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the only positive is that they've refinanced the debt, but it says yeah. a lot when that's the positive. That's, yeah, that's the positive. I think if you're a shareholder, the best thing, I mean, maybe they have a lucky find or they're acquired, but I don't know who would really be looking to acquire this company. Yeah. Next company, Sam. So next up, we've got Just Eat Takeaway. So just, we've, we've covered the business before. I'm sure you're familiar with Just Eat. Just Eat, a couple of years ago, merged with Dutch company Takeaway.com. And then in the last couple of months, they've also now acquired Grubhub, which is an American company. So they have come out with their six-month results, and they've announced that half-year 2021 orders are up 61%, 
and that's 51% when you include Grubhub's figures and gross transaction volume of 14.1 billion euros. Jitta Groen, CEO of JustEatTakeaway.com said, we've combined JustEatTakeaway.com and Grubhub into one of the largest, largest online food delivery companies in the world. The new combination grew 51% in terms of orders in the first half year. Adjusted EBITDA losses, mainly caused by US and Canadian fee caps and our investment program have now peaked. We therefore expect the company to trend back towards profitability going forward while retaining significant growth during the second half of the year. So in terms of orders for the half, in the UK, they were up 76%, 62% in Germany, 54% in Canada, 37% in the Netherlands, 54% in the rest of the world. And on average for orders excluding the US, that was an increase of 61%. US orders were only up 27% and US orders make up, or the US revenue makes up 134.4 million compared to 546.8 million overall. So because of that, it's dragged the overall growth down to 51%. In terms of delivery orders, excluding the US, they're up 158% year over year, with the US delivery orders up 53%, which drags the overall delivery orders down to 106%. The company announced that given the success of the investment program in the legacy Just Eat market, expectations for 2021 have improved. Management upgrades its previous guidance of more than 42% order growth for the company excluding Grubhub during 2021 to now more than 45% order growth for the full year. Gross transaction volume for the full year for JustEatTakeaway.com, including Grubhub, is expected to be in the range of 28 to 30 billion. And they highlighted that Just Eat gained online share in the UK. And they said that JustEatTakeaway.com will, will continue to invest in growth and prioritise market share over adjusted EBITDA. We have mentioned it before, but we won't go into what we think of adjusted EBITDA as a metric. So I'd certainly agree that they should continue to prioritise market share instead of that. And as previously announced, JustEatTakeaway.com intends to take a period of time to determine the optimal listing venues for the company's long-term future. Following the completion of the Grubhub transaction, this review is ongoing and no decisions on the structure of the company's listing venues are expected prior to FTSE Russell's semi-annual review of assigned nationality in August 2021. Therefore, it is possible that JustEatTakeaway.com will cease to be eligible for inclusion in the UK FTSE index series from the next review decision expected to be announced on 1 September 2021. There was an interesting point in the slides where they highlighted that in Europe, they are the market leader. In Canada, they are the market leader. Israel are the market leader. Australia and New Zealand are the market leader. Brazil are the market leader. The only areas where they're not market leader is Colombia and I mean, they're not actually market leader in every single European country they operate, but they just looked at Europe as a whole in this. And then America, which I think we talked about it last time. We didn't particularly like the acquisition of Grubhub. Yeah. I don't think it, they've, they've acquired the third biggest company with a, quite a poor recent track record. And, you know, like this, it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the, yeah. of the areas, really. But anyway, so. Yeah, I, I noticed also there was something that they've, 
they're getting into the logistics business as well, which I think we commented, especially when we covered uh, Deliveroo and the IPO, that we didn't see as necessarily a good thing. It's, I guess, a race to the bottom. And they've launched their own delivery operation called Scuba, which they're expanding in Europe and cities like Liverpool, London and Birmingham. I don't know what you think about that, Sam, whether you think it's, again, you know, a, a similar story to, I suppose, Deliveroo and one of the less attractive aspects in the fast food market. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's there's lots of other things to consider, but I think if you if it didn't have Grubhub and it wasn't trying to do delivery, it's certainly a company that I'd be taking a look at. Whether or not I get it is another matter, but, mm. you know, I don't like Grubhub and I don't like... I don't like the delivery because it's just not, it's not very profitable. And it is, it's kind of like, it's it's like the Uber problem. It might be a great product, but it's not so far proven to be a great business. And I don't see it with delivery. If you're delivering for a local restaurant, it is just a commodity. They're just going to go with whoever's cheapest. And what's going to happen is you just end up, I think, I think a lot of places, a lot of, a lot of them are going to be run at a loss, I think, Mm. Uh, or very little profit anyway, Um, because it's such thin margins anyway. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the market didn't seem to like these results. The shares were down 9% on the day. Well, so it's, it's currently got a market cap of 12.4 billion. Another issue I have with it is they've got all these different elements of the business. I don't really like, I can't really play around with the numbers and say, well, how big do I think this can be? What's the revenue going to look like in, say, 10 years? I, mm-hmm. It would just be complete guesswork. I, 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 so I don't know whether they'll ever justify the current valuation, whether they'll end up as a hundred billion pound company or whether they should actually be a one billion pound company. I just can't value the thing, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult. So on that basis, is it one you'll watch out of interest, but not one that you consider investing in? Yeah, I'll continue to watch it, but I think unless unless delivery turned out to be wildly profitable and there's there seems to be a serious turnaround in Grubhub, I would not consider it. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, it, I'd be in a similar boat on that front. I don't think it's one that I consider at the moment, but be interesting to watch and see how different elements of the business and overall the direction it goes in, but not, not one that I'd be investing at the moment. Yeah. So on to our US company for the week, which is Pepsi. Needs little introduction, but it's the world's second largest cola brand. And it also has the snacks business like Walker's Crisps, Doritos, even some, well, cereal, some Quaker Oats in there. They had their second quarter results out and they announced that there was an increase in organic revenue of 13% to $19.2 billion with underlying operating profit up 22%, strong performances in all divisions, with the exception of Quaker Foods. Management have increased guidance with full-year organic revenue growth of 6% and an 11% increase in underlying earnings per share, with $5.9 billion to be returned to shareholders, mostly in cash through dividends, $5.8 billion, and $106 million share buyback, which is actually already being completed. And if we break those results down a little further, sales in Frito-Lay, North America, rose 6% to $4.6 billion, thanks to both pricing and volume increases. Operating profits came in at $1.4 billion in that division, which were 7% ahead of last year, reflecting increased revenue, lower costs, but COVID leading to overall operating costs and market expenses 
being slightly higher. Quaker Foods in North America saw revenue fall 14% to $575 million as volumes fell 21% and price increases were unable to make up for that. The revenue decline followed double-digit declines in oatmeal, pancake syrup and mix and ready-to-eat cereals. The group did point out that demand was moderating after a substantial surge due to the pandemic last year and operating profits were down 35% to 128 million. Operating profits at PepsiCo Beverages North America were up 83% to $811 million. That reflected a 21% increase in revenue to $6.2 billion. It was helped by a 20% increase in non-carbonated beverage volumes, and there was a, a moderate increase in costs. Revenue in Latin America rose 16% to $2 billion, and operating profits rose 47% to $362 million. Europe saw a revenue rise of 15% to $3.3 billion, and operating profits for this division were $420 million, up 11% compared with the previous year. Operating profits in Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia were up from $221 million to $265 million, and revenue rose 15% to $1.6 billion. Asia Pacific, Australia, and New Zealand, the China region reported a 6% increase in revenue to $1.1 billion, and profits in the division were actually down 3% to $196 million. Net debt at the end of the quarter was $36.5 billion, which is actually up from $34.6 billion at the end of last year. In terms of valuation, PepsiCo has a price-to-earnings ratio of 23.6, compared with a 10-year average of 19.7. Its market cap's over $200 billion, I think around the $230 billion mark, and it has a prospective yield of 3%. And interestingly, that yield has been, well, the dividend growth has been going on for 49 consecutive years. Sam, thoughts on PepsiCo and these results? I, I really like it. I thought it was, I think, for a company of that size in, that in, in those industries, I thought they were fantastic results. I thought, I mean, when you look at the brands, I, had, I probably hadn't really appreciated, I've not really looked at it before today, and I, I hadn't really appreciated that it's, whereas Coca-Cola is just a soft drinks company, Pepsi is a soft drinks and snacks company. So it's actually got sales that are around twice coca-cola's because of that when you look at the products it's got it's got it's got 23 different brands that generate 1 billion or more of sales every year and if you go down the list you've obviously got pepsi but you've got lay's crisps mountain dew doritos tropicana quaker oats cheetos they even do the starbucks like the the frappuccinos that you can buy in stores they actually do that what else is a seven up walkers i mean it's just so many quality brands it's probably it's, it's almost akin to a, a unilever isn't it in terms of the quality it, of those brands it is it's the only... I suppose that's reflected in the price as well yeah, it, that's it's not it, it doesn't it doesn't come cheap but i suppose quality doesn't um yeah would I you pay want, up no i yeah. wouldn't i wouldn't want to pay 23 <laughs> times earnings for it but it's it's yeah. a great business so it's a business where if it if it pulled back yeah, I'd certainly consider it for a business of that quality. I just wouldn't want to pay 
that much because I don't I don't see where that growth comes from to be honest. I think it's almost like trading as a bond proxy now. Yeah, and I, I suppose this is the difficulty because when you do have quality quality companies like this, they don't often come cheap. And I guess it's one of those questions: do you do you pay up for it and accept that you might have some fluctuate you know fl- uh, fluctuating in the share price because you you intend to hold it for the very long term on the basis that it's it's not often that it's going to be cheaper than this. I mean, I know it's like this with every share, but if it's trading at uh, $155 a share now, March 2020, you could have got it below 110. Mm. That would, you know, I mean, I appreciate that was a very, very narrow window, but I think <laughs> yeah. that's probably like the time you want to buy a business like this. Because I just think if you buy it at 20, 23, 24 times earnings, it could, it could, it could be many years before the business is actually, you know, earning at yeah. a level that just, that, you know, that just justifies that. Yeah. But it is a great business. It's yeah. I think I think we can agree on that. Valuation is more difficult, but it's extremely high quality. And I, if you were looking for a business like this, you probably wouldn't find a better one. I mean, yeah. Unilever would be or, or Coke itself. Well, you don't get you the snacks might, of Coke, do you? Well, that's it. You might make the argument for actually buying Pepsi over Coke because it's not just about Pepsi. Yeah. Do you prefer no, Pepsi or Coke to drink? I prefer Coke as prefer a drink. As I a drink. Do you? Well, as a company, I prefer Pepsi, but as a drink, I prefer Coke. Uh, Pepsi's <laughs> sweeter. That's why I like it. Is anyway, it? Yeah, it's, oh, it's, well, if you actually okay. try to see, Pepsi's got a sweeter taste. Is it? Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why I like Coke. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but uh, Coke actually, Coke reports this week, so we could look at it on next week's show, actually. And we, Yeah, we could do a comparison. Yeah. That sounds good. It could be our American company next week. Yes. Um, well, I think on that uh, on that note, well, in fact, let's let's just wind back slightly. Of these companies, then, which one would you which one do you think you'd buy? It'd be Barrett Developments, and there's not really, you know, there's not really like a second place to be honest. It's for me, yeah. it's like head and shoulders above the others we've looked at this. Yeah. Week. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. We've had a, a, a couple of house builders on which. Yeah, it's it looking like an attractive sector at the moment. If you, if we were to say a second company, what do you think? You, what do you think then? I probably would go with Pepsi in that case, <laughs> um, just because I'd, I'd probably rather pay up for Pepsi. Yeah, I mean, Emis Group and Tuller Oil, I didn't like, so they're out. Yeah. Just Eat Takeaway, I, I've got quite a lot of reservations about that. So it's probably between Pepsi and Burberry. I'd probably rather pay up for Pepsi than pay up for Burberry because I just feel like you're getting a better business. Yeah. And yeah, I would, without being boring, I'd probably go with the same as well. <laughs> I'd probably go for PepsiCo and then it will be Burberry after that, probably then followed by Just Eat. But yeah, I, to be honest, I don't think at the moment I'd be buying any of them. If I hadn't already got a house builder myself, I probably would go in for Barrett, I think. Um, I'd want that as part of my portfolio. Yeah. I just hope I can oh, do better than Barrett, but I do, I do like it as a business. Uh, but I think it's it's having something that's very, I suppose, cash generative in the portfolio as well. It is, yeah. It's just not my cup of tea, really. In twenty no. years, maybe. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, well, on that note, I think we'll leave it for this week. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. And for our US company, we'll cover Coca Cola. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets.
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.